Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I work at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleagues, Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and Dalibur Rohat with AI. On this podcast, we talk about the many challenges to the European peace that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why these matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Today, it's just going to be the three of us uh, because we wanted to have a sort of crash episode, as it were, on the situation in Moldova, which is grabbing the, the headlines these days. And uh, fortunately, uh, Yulia has been following these uh, very intently and very closely. Yulia, why don't you get us started and kind of bring us and our listeners up to date with, with what's up in Moldova and Transnistria. Transnistria, that's right. I, I, the, the, what's the name of the republic? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, it's an endless yeah. name um, with, yeah. with several abbreviations. Let's just call it Transnistria and the capital is Tiraspol. It's a country, well, it's an entity, right? An entity that is very long and very thin in geography, squeezed between Moldova in the south and Ukraine um, in, in the north. And before we get into the content and we're looking into Moldova, I feel like we should say at the beginning, as we're looking at Moldova, welcome to the most complicated country in Europe. Um, it's really hard to understand what is going on there. And unfortunately, here in the West, we basically don't don't write about it, don't focus on it, don't talk about it. Um, I think it was two Saturdays ago when I was walking in my suburban neighborhood in uh, Washington, D.C. in the morning, walking my dog, and I saw the Washington Post on the street, and the front page was Moldova. And I'm pretty sure it's the first time in Moldova's history that it's made it to the Washington Post front page. Um, so this is that was of, Moldova with an exclamation point or a question mark. It was uh, with uh, it's getting hotter in there or something yeah. like that, right? Um, and that's what we've been focusing for a while on. Um, we have several articles and work to plug mm. in, but I'll plug in here to watch out for. Maybe will be it will not be linked yet when we published the episode, an interview I did um, a week or so ago with the Moldovan Minister of Foreign Affairs who was in town, um, where um, we asked him also about what is going on there and to help us make sense of the situation. But essentially, as we're looking at Moldova and Transnistria, the birth of that obviously is at the end of the Soviet Union. And the way Transnistria was born was out of um, a situation that we might be looking at right now in terms of a risk scenario. Um, the Russian or then still Soviet into Russian propaganda was telling the story um, to citizens in Moldova, newly becoming independent, that Moldova wants to reunify with Romania um, because it had been part of Romania until the end of World War II. And uh, that's how they managed to create the separate entity Transnistria. Um, the 
population in Moldova is ethnically Romanian. The language is Romanian according to the constitution and there's super close ties forever. So obviously that was a very good way um, from the Russian side to, to create this propaganda and then, and then lead to the creation of separatist Transnistria that ever since Russia has been using against Moldova to tie Moldova down to um, its neutrality, to make Moldova not have an armed force, to write into the constitution that Moldova is neutral and to disable it also economically because Transnistria is where the heavy industry lies and it was privatized into oligarchs and there's a huge uh, electricity bill, for instance, that no one has paid. It's coming from Russia. Moldova cannot pay. So this is just one example to show, um, to, yeah, to kind of show how it's, how Russia has been tying down Moldova through Transnistria. If we're looking at Moldova itself, the population is um, split in, in citizenship and in political orientation. So um, in citizenship, one in three Moldovans has Romanian, so EU citizenship, but there's also a few hundreds of thousands in Moldova and together in Transnistria that have Russian citizenship. Transnistrians have sometimes quadruple citizenship, Moldovan, Transnistrian, Russian and Romanian. So that obviously makes things even more complicated. And then the consumers of media in Moldova have been for the last 30 years consuming Russian media because that's a lot more attractive than Romanian. They speak Romanian and Russian. And, um, and so they are deeply infused with Russian propaganda to the extent that they believe Ukraine is at fault for this war in its entirety. So why should we? Why are we talking about this now? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, now we're looking at, and we're, I guess we'll talk through different scenarios. But Russian propaganda with the possibility of military or security scenarios, um, but Russian propaganda um, going on two lines. On one side saying that um, Ukraine wants to invade Moldova, and on the other side saying that Romania wants to do reunification with Moldova, um, to ask the citizens of Moldova to defy a law that the government has put in place, uh, a government which is extraordinarily the most ever Western government in Moldova, even more Western, I would say, than the Ukrainian government, um, but very vulnerable, obviously. And uh, they've put a, play, uh, um, a law in place a couple of weeks ago after Bucha um, making signs of extremism such as the Z signs illegal. So the Russians are feeding propaganda to the Moldovans and are saying, defy the government, um, show your signs of solidarity with Russia, um, take it to the streets. And that's basically where we are right now. Dalibor, you had a piece uh, recently in The Spectator uh, asking whether Moldova was Vladimir Putin's uh, next target. Um, can you sort of uh, summarize uh, the issues that you see or the argument that you were making? 
Sure. Um, so I was just rereading the piece in preparation for this podcast, and I made the mistake of of clicking through up to the comments section. And and I saw this. Let, let me guess. Let me guess. Your Moscow fan club is not as large as you thought it was. It's also true that the Spectator, um, much as I love the magazine, attracts certain contrarian crowd, which overlaps <laughs> yes, with their breads. What are you do? With, with 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 all kinds of pro-Russian uh, trolls. Um, but, but one of the commenters suggested that the Ukrainians were indeed going to invade because of these munition depots that that Russians supposedly have in Transnistria. So in addition to all the Western aid that's flowing into Ukraine, Ukrainians have their eyes set on Transnistrian munition depots. I'm not sure you know, what shape those Russian armaments and so on are, mm-hmm. are, are in. But but anyway, um, it, it's fascinating that the little history that, that Yulia gave us of, 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 of Moldova and Transnistria. So, so, so if I'm not mistaken, the... This frozen conflict really dates back to to the time when the Soviet Union still existed, right? When when trans, at the moment Transnistria the broke dissolution. away in sort of in October 1990, yeah. in sort of anticipation of whatever Moldovans might be might be might be doing next, and and also the cast of characters that you see in in in, in the current Ukrainian story and overlaps to some extent with those that were present in the um, in the Transnistrian conflict. So, so Dmitry Kozak, who is the chief of staff right. uh, to Vladimir Putin, is the author of the so-called Kozak Memorandum that envisaged already in 2003 a federalization of Moldova in a way that would give this sort of self-styled Russian People's Republic an effective veto power over Moldovan uh, foreign policy and all kinds of other things that would just lead to dysfunction. And like, you know, Moldova, like from my perspective, has long been sort of dysfunctional in various ways and and torn between the sort of politics of Soviet nostalgia and and sort of more reformist uh, efforts, which which I think brings us to this question of timing, Uh, you know, partly because you have, a staunchly pro-Western leader in Moldova right now after years of... Pro-Russianism, essentially. Unsavory types. Igor yeah. Dodon was the sort of predecessor mired in all kinds of, you know, c- combining sort of corruption and, and sort of Soviet politics of Soviet nostalgia. And he's, you, you... he's super in love with Putin. His campaign was like basically embracing Putin. So, yeah. So, 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 so that's part of the story. The other part, obviously, is 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 that the campaign in Ukraine, the special military operation, isn't going all that well, and being able to actually pull off that scenario under which you have little green men taking over a country and and reclaiming it as as part of of the of the Ruski Mir might might look attractive to to. To, to Putin, you also had an acceleration in in Brussels of of of, of the sort of debates about the potential candidate status of mm-hmm. not only Ukraine but also Georgia and Moldova, and and with with the Moldovan leadership uh, being being sort of attuned to that, uh, the Kremlin might feel that there is a limited window of opportunity to. To, to to reclaim the country or destabilize it in some sort of decisive way, and then then I think it has also a direct bearing on the on 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 the conflict in Ukraine, where if you want to create this land bridge, 
than having control of Moldova proper and and that that Ukrainian Bessarabia uh, immediately south of Moldova might be might might come in handy if if this sort of long term ambition is to you know get Odessa and 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 get that Black Sea coast. So 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 I think there are good reasons to to be concerned. Uh, Yulia, you shared um, with us this piece from from the Times which came out of the weekend, which relied on sources in the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian intelligence who were saying that there was something brewing. So, so maybe one way to, uh, to unpack this is to sort of look at specifically what's been happening over the past couple of days and what are the indications that the Russians might be, might be up to something. Okay, mein Kameraden, <laughs> here's the part in our little melodrama where I played the lunk-headed American. Um, so I got some questions because to begin with, um, you know, as Delamore noted, things are not going according to plan in Ukraine uh, right. for the Russians and severely not according to plan. So while the idea of a a diversion of this source might have some a natural appeal. Um, you know, they're, they're diverting. Our attention is one thing and diverting the attention of uh, Russian commanders when they're holding on by their fingernails and could easily be facing uh, a fairly catastrophic situation. You know, uh, a few days after uh, the uh, chief of the Russian general staff who'd been dispatched to Ukraine uh, barely survived an artillery attack. Um, so the Russians are otherwise occupied. They're especially not succeeding in building this land bridge. I mean, they've uh, uh, the Ukrainians are, are not simply, um, you know, pushing back uh, against the... Uh, in the territory in the south, where the that the Russians initially seized, there are already uh, you know guerrilla campaigns going on across the land bridge, you know, from um, from Crimea to to the Donbass. So what they have, they're barely holding on to, and we be, have begun to see the effects of uh, more advanced Western weaponry. Uh, being bought, being brought to bear against the Russians. Secondly, although I don't know much about Moldova or Transnistria, I have looked some things up, including a map. Uh, so yes, it's a long and skinny and narrow place uh, without access to the sea. Mm -hmm. So how did the Russian? Uh, you know, it's not like the Russians can easily dispatch more forces there. Uh, I was also reading about the um, Transnistrian uh, militias, um, which aren't that big. Uh, like not maybe that well-trained. Right. And in fact, are mostly Transnistrians, not Russians. Maybe there's a core yeah. of a couple hundred Russians <laughs> there. So we're not talking about a massive new army group appearing no. uh, in the Western part of the theater. And again, uh, it's too easy to poke fun at the Russians, but these guys can't be more adept and more tactically agile 
than what we've seen so far. So I'm sure they can cause trouble and destabilize things. And it, it appears likely that they're behind or, or uh, whether at Moscow's uh, bidding or whether, you know, this is just a case of uh, the local yokels going, uh, you know, taking advantage of an opportunity or doing something just because they can, knocking over a couple of um, television towers and uh, planting a bomb in an unoccupied semi-official building. So long story short, uh, I would not sell Vladimir Putin short in any, you know, it may look crazy to us, but then we've, he always looks crazy to us lately. But I'm, I'm underwhelmed by this, mm. uh, um, you know. And I think uh, in you're some right. Ways, in some ways, I, I would say, oh, please, oh, please, Vladimir, so turn your sights on Moldova, you know, two weeks from now. It'll be a member of NATO, too. Uh, so, again, help me put this in some kind of context is what, it, is what my lament comes down to. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I think with our limited understanding here of this complicated thing mm -hmm. called Moldova, we've been focusing over the last one or two weeks excessively on a military scenario that basically everybody's ruling out. I mean, Putin, of course, can try what is a 2% chance, but but he's not going to succeed with what is in Transnistria. But, but I think the military scenario is the one that is sort of creating diversion from the real risk. And that's, that's something that is not a military scenario. That's a scenario in which you have a parallel to what happened in, um, in 30 years ago, a form of low intensity, low casualty civil war, um, or, um, a, a creation of that in terms of a diversion, the Moldovans already, the pro-Westerners, now we see an exodus over the last few days, are pouring out of Moldova into Romania. The more Eastern-oriented ones, the ones that are Rus watching Russian TV, they are not going to fight. Um, they'll just be waiting with flowers. But what if a coup takes place with just a few hundred people? They have no, the government has no means to protect it self physically i'm um, sure there's police but you don't understand okay well there i mean they do have some security for again this isn't one of the facts that i've learned in the past 48 hours i mean they they, they don't really have what you would call a standing army but they do have you know, security, security force. force yeah, yeah and police with and some military training how are they standing politically I a don't lot. look. Okay, I'm I'm already at the edge of my design <laughs> tolerance. Any, yeah, I, I think I think we're looking at the the most risky scenario with Moldova is indeed not a military one, but I think it's one that that looks at over not until so yeah nine, May 9th, we're focused on that, but I think it's beyond that. Looked at looks at destabilizing the country and the government amplifying tensions with Ukraine and with Romania, creating protest movements, um, feeding um, the Russian narratives and the Russian propaganda, um, creating provocations around May 9th and later, 
creating further, as we've seen over the last two weeks, um, and more sabotage of critical infrastructure, targeting of national minorities. The ethnicity there is very mixed um, and, and, and complicated. Um, and and there's more coming up that is decisive for Moldova. The, they're completely dependent, for instance, on Russian gas. The contract is running out in May. Um, and, and so that can add further. In the semi-military scenario, and I think that's something interesting that connects Moldova to Ukraine, in a military scenario, um, I think it was Arestovich, the famous counselor of uh, or advisor of um, Zelensky, who foresaw everything several years ago, who said, we will not be going into Moldova except with uh, at the request of the Moldovan government. So if things do get hot, even with a few hundred people, Moldova will be considering asking for help. They can only ask Ukraine or Romania. Romania is NATO territory, so that's not going to happen. And in in, in military terms... Well, wait, wait a minute. Why, why not? I mean, uh, why can't uh, the Moldovans could ask the United States for help securing their government? There's, in fact, in some ways, the fact that Moldova is not a NATO member lowers the bar. The... the the Moldovans say, hey, we're, we need some help with internal security. What, what can you do? Um, we have forces that are just over the border in Romania that could easily get there. And we, the West could offer, and probably should offer, guarantees of, of support for, as you quite rightly said, a very Western-leaning government. You know. That would mean troops on the ground, wouldn't it? But but there's no I mean there's no direct conflict with Russia there. But I think the same sort of arguments yeah. about you know self deterrence apply here as, as I mean there are, you know there are fifteen hundred troops in Transnistria I, that I, are Russian troops. They're not national Russian troops. It's a it's a militia with some. And there actually like official Russian force. troops in Transnistria. Yeah. I think there are. Yeah, yeah. Is, the, is there, the 14th is there a, the former 14th battalion of the Russian? Is this, was this an agreement between the Moldovans no, and no, no. the Russians? They're illegally there as peacekeepers. Moldova does not okay, recognize well, so them. I don't see on what legal basis. Of course, the Russians would object. Okay, let's just uh, assume that. But um, it does seem to me that the Biden administration has sailed past the self-deterrence, <laughs> uh, you know, checkered flag at long last. Of course, there are political, there will still be risks and all the rest of it. I don't know. I, I don't think I disagree with you. I, I just don't see this happening on the on the U.S. side or on like, yes, I'm glad that sort of moved on from that self-deterrence phase, but sort of the idea of sending troops preemptively to Moldova that like nobody really understands or, or cares about all that much. I don't think that would be a sort of particularly appealing proposition for the for the administration. Well, I mean, I, I would like well, to see that happening. I, I just don't think it will. Uh, uh, you know, preventively or preemptively uh, deterring further mischief provoked by the Russians under the circumstances we find ourselves in, you should all be thankful. I'm not national security advisor, but I might be recommending that if somebody. Asks. No, I think I yeah I, I don't I don't I don't disagree. It's just like I, I suspect that the the sort of conclusion of this conversation will be quite different in this in this administration. And I think I don't want to sort of accuse you of a 
failure of imagination <laughs> earlier, but I, I, you know, I do think that the Russians have an established track record of sort of applying one model of intervention in different places around, you know, in the in the neighborhood, if you will, which consists of building some sort of pretext, sending in peacekeepers or little green men, uh, working with domestic actors in whatever way and, and and then just establishing some sort of new status quo on the ground and it you know it worked fine in Kazakhstan it worked in Crimea you know did what it was supposed to do in 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 Georgia in 2008 and i mean the fact that it didn't work in in Ukraine does not mean that it won't be tried again in a different context i, mean, I don't think putin went into ukraine with the expectation and desire of fighting a 10 year land war Right, the idea was to send in those paratroopers and to install some satrap, and 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 then have a, you know a massive military parade on on May 9th. Uh and I suspect he might just be able to pull something like that off in a place like Moldova, which is just far more fragile, far less equipped to to withstand subversion. There are many more willing actors to sort of cooperate with. With with, with 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 the Russians, so I guess it sort of like brings us to this I, area of I don't know if it's gray zone warfare, but like there is a spectrum of sort of things that 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 the Russians do, which ranges from sort of open ended war of the sort we see in Ukraine and and the dozens of various various interventions and uh, and and you know little green men like situations that that they have pulled off with varying degrees of success one one very brief example visual example of that is you know our now joke that that putin was expecting was hoping for people in ukraine to wait with flowers on the streets um that's an important visual parallel for him that obviously didn't happen and that was such a stupid assessment because they had been through eight years of war in 2014 that partially happened um and and that can happen in moldova half are fleeing half are, are are waiting with flowers um, and if the government in power and in the U.S. or not, none of them are moving, and it's actually down to Kishino who would um, who would have to make a call um, and ask for help. If if that's not happening, the flowers are a real scenario. I think. You know, I just have this image of poor Vladimir Putin driving around Eastern Europe, <laughs> waiting for the flower shower to. Uh, <laughs> To descend upon him. Dalibor, I would totally agree that this is their MO. It's all they know to a certain degree. Uh, but it also didn't work too well in Armenia the last time around. It's worth uh, recalling. Again, different different circumstances. And, uh, you know, who the heck knows, but one hopes that, you know, part of the reason that this MO has worked is because the rest of the world, and particularly the United States, has looked the opposite way each yeah. previous time. Um, I, I would think that even allow, I mean, again, let me put this as a hypothetical. Let's allow for the fragility of the uh, Moldovan state. Um, but, you know, if, as in their desperation, they reached out to the West, you know, what would 
the consequences be? I, I, and let's also, for the sake of argument, assume that they got a favorable response of some sort. Would that, could that stabilize the situation in a sufficient way? I, I think it would. I think it would come with significant additional problems and risks in that, obviously, the Moldovan um, population, even if split, none of them likes Americans and doesn't hope for, unlike in other countries in the region, American presence on the ground. But that could be managed. Other than in Transnistria, you know, how popular is Putin these days? Oh, very very in Moldova. He's the most popular political figure in Moldova. And and there's true belief and true deep brainwash, like in Russia, in terms of what the population believes. So, so the majority of Moldovans is pining for a reunification with, with, with Russia? Not exactly, but they really like Putin. They, they want to stay like that, but they do perceive... Donald Trump likes Putin. I mean... <laughs> Well, it matters. I mean, is it, is it because he's, uh, you know? Yeah, because because yeah, okay. of that. Um, but um, the problem that I see is is the fact that we don't um, that you know, just two months ago, Biden offered Zelensky a ride, and Zelensky thank God said, "I don't need a ride." Famously, I I need ammunition. That's not Maya mm. Sandu. Um, she she will run. She has to. Um, I'd like a ride in your tank. I, I, there's some things that I shouldn't be saying on this podcast, um, but but there's a real risk of, uh, and and there's no choice in in their government's view in terms of the options because they don't have anyone to defend themselves, um, and. Um, and so it is a question also of where if the Biden administration indeed has changed their strategy and indeed is now focusing on Moldova, or is that just us believing it because we look at the media? Um, but, you know, just two months ago, the parallel, I'm afraid I, I'm afraid I'm I'm not deeply believing yet that this change of shift and change in strategy has permeated well, I think, look, as look, well. Look, like the, the, the change of strategy was totally endogenous to the attitude that, that the Ukrainians put on display, right? And, and, and so unless you have that same degree exactly. of just determination to defend the statehood, and stand strong against the Russians and just fight. Uh, it becomes very hard to justify politically for you know Olaf Scholz or Joe Biden or whoever to to justify to you know like lean in more heavily than just with you know maybe an additional round of sanctions and hang bringing and and offer of help to Moldovan refugees. Well, let me ask you guys this: I mean, is this an an important? Western security interest to prop up the government, the current government of Moldova. It should be. I'm not sure it has sunken in as much. Uh, you know, just what's the right answer? <laughs> the right answer is yes, of course, because right now, I mean, 
first of all, we should be celebrating with all of our support, even independent or before the war, this existing government that is, um, you know, head down really amazing. We've never seen that in the region anywhere in, in regional countries within the EU or outside. And I'm not looking to your country, Slovakia, <laughs> Dali, but that's an exception that's a pro-Western, but I'm looking more south and, in, you know, um, so, so yes, they definitely should be supporting it anyway. And, and now with the war, it's really that, um, that, militarily and strategically um ukraine is sort of the um, how do you call it the 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 what keeps russia out of moldova um like the physical security to moldova but but i'm just concerned i guess maybe you guys see it differently that this has sunken in in terms of Biden administration regional strategy. I think it's somewhat more comp- a somewhat more complicated case than than with Ukraine itself, partly because of this overhang of Soviet nostalgia and and just the sort of lack of like Ukraine today is defined by the post Maidan politics and the efforts to just turn the country into a success story, which have yielded some results and have focused the attentions of people and you know build the real military etc etc and so so moldova doesn't really have any of that that said if a new political sort of situation were established on the ground that would be dramatically more favorable to russia like that wouldn't be good that wouldn't be good for the conflict in ukraine that wouldn't be good for security of romania it would make it harder for you know it, it would require more troops in 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 romania greater focus of the alliance on on that southern southern flank so so we should definitely be doing everything in our power to prevent that if if we think it's happening it's cheaper now than later right well that's 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 sort of what i think too i we've come to one of our classic points of punctuation on the eastern front wherein i say that uh, the united states and the west always do the right thing, but only after exhausting all other uh, possibilities from which uh, cliche I derive that things will get worse in Moldova, uh, but then we'll try to do something uh, to figure Before out. Before they get better, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. I want to thank my colleagues for the education. Uh, I'll try to remember <laughs> some of it. My name is uh, Del Donnelly, and for me... And Yulia Zhoja and Dalibur Rohaj. Thanks for indulging us on the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges that have arisen along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at aei.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever the heck you get your podcasts. Please be in touch with us on Twitter. Our hashtag is Eastern Front Pod. That's one word. Uh, so that's how to find us on Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you so much, and goodbye till next time.